Chapter 30, Dollar Bills. I stay awake for hours listening to the sounds of the other girls in the room. They don't seem like bad girls. I think dimly as their conversations wash over me. They talk about school and boys and which shelters have the comfiest beds or the best breakfast. They probably didn't mean any harm when they drew all over my paper things and it wasn't exactly I was shouting at them to stop. But whether they meant harm or not, they had no right to do what they did and I can't help thinking that I hate each and every one of them. Eventually my eyes got heavy and I drift off to sleep. But it's a light sleep and that turns out to be a good thing because suddenly in the darkness I hear Gage's voice. At first I think I'm dreaming, but the actual words penetrate just barely distinguishable through the thin walls. My sister is upstairs, Gage says to someone. Can you make sure someone tells her? I bolt away, grab my backpack and fly down the stairs. Gage is opening the front door when I call out his name. Ari, he says, then quickly lowers his voice. What are you doing up? I heard you talking, I say, slipping my backpack onto my shoulders. I figured you were leaving. Yeah, the room is filled up but I thought we agreed you'd stay here. I give him a look that says, don't even try to talk to me into staying. Grab that blanket, he says, pointing to one that had been unfolded on the couch. I nab it and we're out the door. The night is frigid and within minutes I can't feel my feet, but I know better than to complain. Besides, I am too tired too much more than follow Gage up the hilly roads. This time he doesn't race ahead of me. He holds my hand and I take it. At this hour, the city is much darker than I have ever seen it before. I look up as we walk and see the stars. With the stars overhead, Gage's warm hand holding mine. I feel safe and protected and I know everything will turn out okay. Soon, I realise that we're headed towards Chloe's. Just as I'm starting to worry that she might be upset to have us knock on the door in the middle of the night, we stop in front of her forest green car. Where are we going? I start to ask. Wondering when Chloe gave Gage her car keys, but Gage doesn't answer. Instead, he takes a long, thin piece of metal from his back pocket and uses it to unlock the car door. Thank goodness her car is so old, Gage says, as he opens the driver's side door. You can't do this on new cars. They've got computer systems and alarms. I stare at the alarm at the open door and still trying to make sense of what's happening. Come on, Gage says, motioning for me to get in. And crawl over to the passenger side. You're letting all the air in. As I slid into the seat, I think about the kid Chloe pays to protect this car. I'm sure he's sleeping right now. I'm expecting Gage to do something to the ignition and driver somewhere. Briggs's place, maybe, or Prairie or Kristen's, but instead... He reclines his seat as far back as it will go and settles in. And I finally get it. We're sleeping in Chloe's car. I recline my seat too and cover up with the blanket. I'm cold to my bones and worried that Gage must be even colder without a blanket. But without a key, it's impossible to turn the heat on. I try to share my blanket. Nah, I don't need it. Let me teach you a trick, he says. Close your eyes and picture a little candle in your belly. I look at him and he's crazy, but he just nods. Go on, do it. Slowly... I let my eyes droop closed and then think of a candle in my belly, just like he said. Concentrate on the flame, he says, his voice soft and warm in the cold, dark air. Imagine the flame growing bigger and stronger. Feel the heat move from your belly to the other parts of your body, down your arms and legs into your hands and feet. Now feel it moving up your neck and warming your face. I do what he says and holy moly, it actually works. I, deal for, I do feel warmer, like a little flame is moving through my body. 
I only shiver when I stop concentrating. Between the late hour and the fact that we just walked half across, this, uh, across half the city, you'd think that Gage and I would fall right to sleep, but neither of us does. We stare up at the sky, through the moon, roof of the car. I wonder what Gage is thinking. If he's wishing he weren't so full of pride that he could just go and knock on Chloe's door, or if he's upset at having to give up his bed at Lighthouse for some stranger. My own thoughts swirl around, drifting from my ruined paper things to Sasha and Keisha and Linny and to Daniel and the Eastland traditions and Carter. Eventually, though, they settle on one thought, and I find myself speaking in the dark. Did you know that Dad dated Yana before he was married to Mama? I ask Gage, my voice sounding light, loud in the silent night. What? No way, he says. What makes you say that? I tell him about Yana's scrapbook and about the pictures of Yana and our dad. How do you know it was our dad? You never met him. It was Gage, I say. It was the same man as Mama's wedding pictures. It was someone who looked exactly like you. Weird, he says. Though I can tell that he doesn't fully believe me. Can't really believe, blame him. I saw the pictures and I can hardly believe it myself. And then something occurs to me. Something that feels so right that I wonder if this was why my brain was fixated on those pictures. Maybe some of Yanni's grouchiness, some of her having to be better than Mama, has to do with Dad and with you. Gage grunts. But I can practically feel the wheels in his head working away, turning over this new information and trying to make sense of it. After that, he's quiet for a while, so quiet that I wonder if he's fallen asleep. But then he speaks up. I know you're looking forward to us having your own place, and I am too. But Wes was telling me about this group house that we might be able to move into. It's called a stability house, and you only pay a small amount of rent, with the rest of the money going into a savings account to help pay for future apartment. The program lets you take classes or even attend college so you can even find a better job. I haven't heard Gage this excited since we got this job at Jiffy Lube. Who else would live in the house, I ask. The family house is filled right now, but they're trying to put together a new house with 18 to 22-year-olds. But I'm only... West is on working on getting you a room in the house too. I think about living in a house like that. It wouldn't be like having a real apartment, one you could decorate, one where you could spread your things and leave them, one where you can stand in front of an open refrigerator door and know that all the food inside is yours for the taking. I'm not even sure you have privacy. The stability house sounds some like a shelter, only there would be the same people every night. I think of the girls back at the lighthouse and my folder of ruined paper things. It sure would solve a lot of problems, Gage says. I wanted to be as excited as Gage sounds, to reassure him that I'll be happy anywhere as long as we're together, but I'm filled with doubts and fears. What will I do on nights when you want to go on a date with Chloe? I ask. Will I stay at the house by myself? And what will I tell my friends? I can't exactly invite them over for sleepovers at a group home. Not that I have any friends anymore, I think, and maybe Gage thinks that too, but he's not, it's enough not to say anything. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it, if we come to it, Gage sighs but it sure would help things if Chloe could stop thinking of me as homeless. I raise myself up on my elbows. You're not, we're not homeless, I say. But Gage is quiet. So I say it again, we're not homeless. Think about it, Ari. What does it mean to be homeless? I think of the people that are on the streets, the ones who are huddled against buildings or standing on curves, asking for money, sometimes talking to themselves. They're homeless. I think of the girls at the lighthouse who drew all over my paper things and talked about which shelters had the nicest beds. They're homeless too. But then I think of Reggie and Omar and the young family with the baby. Homeless people are people who don't have homes.
I say slowly. Right, says Gage. Like us, I realise. Chapter 31, Gift Wrap. In the morning before the bell for homework, homeroom, I do something I've never done before. I sneak into the cafeteria for free breakfast. Jan always insisted that we start the day with a good breakfast, even when Gage swore that he wasn't hungry, that his stomach didn't want a thing. But then, when we were living with friends, I'd eat whatever they had for breakfast. Cheerios at Briggs's, frozen waffles at Chloe's. Lighthouse gives the kids granola bars and juice in the morning. But this morning I've had nothing and I'm starving. The hardest part turns out not to be getting the food. Apparently at breakfast, no one checks to see if you've signed up. So, or even if approved. It's easy for me to slide in and take a tray with scrambled eggs and home fried potatoes. The hardest part is figuring out where to sit. I look around the room and realise that I've never thought about who comes to the cafeteria before school starts. Given that we all have this one thing in common, I should feel relaxed and friendly, able to sit with whoever catches my eye. But instead, I feel oddly shy and embarrassed, like everyone in the room knows that I'm really supposed to be here and resents me for it. I sit down at the end of the table, of one table, close enough to some kids that I don't feel like I'm alone, but far enough that I don't invade their space. Then I open up one of my Louisa May Alcock books and start to read. Even though I read every page of this book already, I notice that, that the book is overdue and realise I'll have to raid my piggy bank at Briggs's pace to pay the fine. Gage and I left the car just as the sun was rising this morning, partly because we were so cold and needed to move around, partly because Gage was afraid Chloe would catch him in his car. So after breakfast, I still have plenty of time to go to the girls' room to freshen up. I go to the handicap stall and change into a clean shirt and uniform, rolling up the stuff I wore last night, cramming it into my bag. It's smelly and hopelessly wrinkled already, so a few more wrinkles won't hurt it. I head to the sink to wash my face and maybe sneak in a quick sponge bath of under my arms with wet paper towel. When I look in the mirror and see my reflection, I groan. I have dark circles under my eyes and my hair's a mess. I can just imagine what Sasha and Keisha are going to say about that. Just then, someone else slips into the bathroom. It's a girl from my class that I recognise, though we hardly ever speak. Hey, Hannah, I say, turning on the water and washing my hands like I've just used the toilet. Hey, Ari, she says, then yawns hugely. Oops, sorry, she apologises, laughing. I keep the water running while she uses the toilet, washing my face as quickly as I can, hoping to finish before she comes out and sees me. I don't dare wash my underarms, though. Thankfully, a quick whiff assures me that they're not too bad today. Not yet, anyway. Hannah comes out of the stall while I'm patting my face dry with paper towel. and I'm about to toss them in the trash can and hurry away when she says to me, You know how to braid, right? I feel heat rising from my belly to the tip of my ears. Her tone may not be as nasty as Keisha, but I can tell what she's really saying. Why don't you braid your hair instead of letting it tangle into a big rat's nest? You used to have the coolest braids, she says, coming up to the sink next to me and washing her hands. Do you think you could braid my hair this morning? I have a comb and a bunch of elastics in my backpack. I try to hide my surprise. I'm not very good at it, I admit. Jan, someone else, used to braid my hair, but I can try. I stand behind her and carefully comb the snags out of her hair, relieved to know that I'm not the only girl at Eastland Elementary with snails. I gather her hair into sections and try my best to make straight parts. It turns out that braiding someone else's hair is way easier than trying to braid your own hair, and I'm pretty happy with the results. I can tell Hannah's smile that she's happy too. Thanks, she says. My mum used to do my hair in the mornings, but ever since she switched to the night shift, she's usually asleep when I leave for school. I know what you mean, I say. Jan hasn't been around lately to do my hair either. This is one of those statements that's not really a lie, but isn't exactly the truth either.
but I want Hannah to know that I understand what it's like not to have a mum around to do things for you. Would you like me to do try to do yours? Hannah asks. I'll warn you though, I don't have a lot of experience. She smiles again and it's contagious. That's okay, I say grinning and turning around. I can walk you through the trickiest bits. And then for some unknown reason, I tell her I had breakfast here this morning. It wasn't half bad. After announcements, Mr. O tells us that the fifth grade teachers had their grade level meeting yesterday. We know what's coming up. Some of us will sit up straighter, which is pretty funny. Do you think that our good posture will make our names magically appear on Mr. O's list of students who got leadership roles? I look around the room trying to determine who has yet to be patrol leader. The role I really, really, really want, though I'd take any job offered to me right now. This is the last time that the announcements will be made. Mr. O announces the library helper. It's Matthew Stone. He pumps his fist and relaxes back into his chair. Some of the kids sitting up straight won't even be applying to Carter, but maybe there are other reasons for them wanting to be patrol leader. Yana always seemed to know when the new leadership roles were announced. I wouldn't be in the house for more than a few minutes when she'd ask, who's patrol leader next month? I felt bad when I admitted that I hadn't been chosen, like I was letting her down. Maybe others like me are hoping to avoid that same question in the same old way. I don't think Gage thinks about me and leadership roles. I don't think he realises how hard it is to get into Carter. I think he just assumes that I'm smart, so I'll go. Joya and Ellison are chosen as math tutors, which seems especially unfair since I've been asked to show them how to do something in math. I guess I'm not as smart as we used to... I guess I'm not as smart as we thought I was. Or maybe I'm not as smart as I used to be. Sanjay and Tilia are patrol leaders, the last patrollers of the year. Fifth grade is almost over, and I will never, ever be patrol leader. Never. Makes me glad that I don't have a scrapbook. In social studies class, kids who are finished with their reports early, thank goodness they're off, officially due next week, are given presentations on their famous 19th century Americans. Linny shows us a poster she made about Davy Crockett, who was known as the king of the wild frontier. Next, Sanjay tells us about a man who lived more than a hundred years ago, named Henry David Thoreau. I sit up taller in my chair and listen when I hear that David, Henry David Thoreau was a friend of Louisa May Alcox. He was also an author, but Sanjay is talking about how he believed in something called civil disobedience. I repeat the words in my head, trying to puzzle out the meaning but I don't think I quite get it. When Sanjay asks, are there any questions? I raise my hand tentatively and say, what exactly is civil disobedience? I hear Keisha snicker behind me, but I try to ignore her. I bet she doesn't really even know what it is means either. Good question, Ariana, Mr. O says. I'm glad I asked it. Sanjay? Civil disobedience is when someone breaks a law to make a point, Sanjay says, and you can tell that he knows a lot about it. Henry David Thoreau didn't pay his taxes because he didn't believe in slavery and he didn't support the Mexican-American uh, War. Back then, part of everyone's tax money went to fund both of those things. So by not paying his taxes, Thoreau was sending a message. I'm going to refuse to do homework because I don't believe in it, Joey says. Does it have to be a law? I ask, ignoring Joey. Is it civil disobedience if you break a rule? Like when you hang snowflakes, even though your principal has abolished the Eastland tradition, says Mr. O. He smiles right back at me. I smile back. One proud moment lifted from my stack. Or wear a crazy hat to protest the loss of traditions. We should do that, Keisha says. We should all wear crazy hats on the same day to let Mr. Chandler know that we believe in our traditions. It could be an act of civil disobedience. 
I open my mouth to say that I'm already planning to do that, that I need to organize it so that I can put it on my Carter application. But everybody is too busy talking excitedly about how about the crazy hat day. Just like that, I'm invisible. The tiredness hits me after Mr. O's class and gets worse throughout the day. By the time my last, com- my last class, computer lab rolls around, can barely keep my eyes open. Ms. Finch teaches us how to make multimedia presentations using animation, audio clips, and video clips. Stuff she knows is actually pretty cool, and I might even be able to enhance my Louisa May Alcock presentation with clips from the movie version of Little Women, or an animated slideshow of the various places she and her family lived before settling in Concord, Massachusetts. If only I could focus. Ari, would you mind staying for a few minutes at the end of the class? Ms. Finch asks quietly as she walks past my workstation. My heart plummets. Did I actually shut my eyes? Is she still mad about sneaking into the lab that one time? I'm wide awake for the rest of the class, but now it's anxiety rather than tiredness that keeps me from focusing on the lesson. When the bell rings, I stand by the door and wait for everyone to leave. Daniel gives me a searching look, but I tell him that I want to ask Miss Finch something about today's lesson. Thankfully, he doesn't offer to stick around. Okay, I'll see you tomorrow, he says, and I head up and heads off. When it's just me and Mrs. Finch in the room, she walks over to her desk and retrieves a paper bag from the bottom drawer. I was thinking of you recently, Ari, she says, opening the bag. I'm holding my breath, wondering where this is going. You see, I bought my niece a new pair of shoes, but they didn't fit her. I swear that girl grows six inches every time I see her. Anyway, you'll probably think I'm crazy for saying this, and I might be way off base, but for some reason they reminded me of you, and if you like them and they fit you, you're welcome to have them. She pulls out a pair of played top sides from the bag. They are without a doubt the cutest pair of shoes I've ever seen in my whole life. She hands them to me. I hold them in both my hands, aware that my mouth is hanging open but unable to close it. Mrs. Finch was giving me a free pair of shoes, of really cute shoes. Why me? Surely lots of girls in her classes might like these shoes and might be right size for them. Was it because she'd noticed that my shoes were falling apart? Were they pity shoes? Or did she really mean it when she said they reminded me of her, of her, of me? Try them on, she says. My fingers barely walk, work as I pull off my old shoes and I wonder if everyone has noticed how ratty they are. Slowly I slip one foot into the top sliders and then the other. I wiggle my toes around and they are perfect size. Maybe this is an act of charity. Maybe Gage would want me to say thanks, but no thanks. But looking down at my feet in these new, brand new trade cool shoes, I decide I don't really care why Mrs. Finch is giving them to me. I'm just grateful that she is. And suddenly, I'm crying. What's wrong, Ari? She says with her voice gentler than I've ever heard it before. Why are you crying? That's just what I do, I say, sniffling and smiling through my tears. I cry when I'm happy. And these shoes make me very, very happy. Thank you, Mrs. Finch. Now it's Mrs. Finch's turn to get a bit teary. You're very welcome, Ariana. What should I, if someone asks, tell them a friend gave them to you, Mrs. Finch says. It's the truth. I give her a big thank you smile and then tuck my old shoes into my backpack and I turn to leave but stop myself. I'm sorry about that day in your class, the class I was working on my bibliography. Oh, she says, brushing her my words away. I may have overreacted. I should have taken your actions so personally. I realised that after you left, that's why I passed your homework on to Mr O'Neill. It was Mrs Finch who turned it in. I want to rush over and hug her, tell her that she could save my life. But before my new dazzling feet can move, she's behind the desk, with glasses on and back to work. I feel like Cinderella in my new shoes. During dismissal, kids tell me how cool they are and ask where I got them. 
Tell them a friend gave them to you. It's the truth. So that's what I do. I wish Sasha and I still did our part while you walk home. I would have liked for her to see them, but I'll wear them tomorrow and every day after, so I suppose she'll see them soon enough. My new shoes are also a big hit at Head Start. Juju keeps rubbing her hands all over them like they're magic or something, and Carol tells me I look very fashion forward. The only person who doesn't love my new shoes is Gage. You could have used the money in your piggy bank to buy shoes, he says as we're walking to Chloe's. I think about my piggy bank and wonder how much money is in there. Would there really be enough for a new pair of shoes? I start dreaming about all the apartment stuff I could buy with that much money. Silverware, towels, sheets. Anyway, I like them, I say to Gage, ignoring his bad mood. And they'll keep my feet warmer than my old shoes. Today, the stairwell at Chloe's is crowded with a bunch of guys spill over from some party happenings in the apartment below hers. The strong scents of their shaving creams and hair gels cover the usual smell of pee. Hey, says a guy about Gage's age, but he doesn't say it to Gage. He says it to me. He takes a drink from a can of beer. Hi, I monitor my eyes on the stairs in front of me. Hey, how old are you? Another guy asks as we climb the stairs. Don't answer, says Gage softly. Chloe greets us in the doorway, seeming really excited to see us. Like usual, I slip inside the apartment to give them a moment. Neither Nate or Cody is home. The apartment seems empty without them. I hear Gage say, I want to, Chloe, but I can't. I don't want to leave Ari alone with those creeps downstairs. She doesn't need someone to watch her. She's old enough to be a babysitter, Gage, and it's not fair to keep asking me to pass things up or go alone. I hate that I'm the reason Chloe and Gage are fighting, and I don't want them to break up. Gage is trying to come through for Chloe, to come through for me, to come through for Mama. Stay together always. That's what Mama said. That's a promise. But I think that both Gage and I know deep down that it's not the promise that's making us hold us each together so tightly. It's the fear of letting go. I can't hear what Gage is saying, but I know he's upset. Quickly, I step into the hallway. Sorry to interrupt, I say, but I just remember that Sasha invited me to stay at her place tonight. Would that be okay? Chloe looks at Gage hopeful, but Gage frowns. It's a school night, he says. I know, I say, but Mariana said we could work on our Carter applications together. Could really use the help. Gage, Chloe pleads. I try not to feel hurt by how badly she wants me out of her hair. Chloe and I have plans tonight, he says slowly, and Chloe's face splits into a wide grin that makes it worth it. We'd have to leave soon, though, I say. I wouldn't have time to take you on the bus to Sasha's. That's okay, I say quickly. I can have Mariana pick me up here. I tell her Chloe was helping me with my Carter application. Thanks, Ari, Chloe says. You're a trooper. She brushes by me to get her purse and her phone. I can't believe I didn't remember earlier, I say. But but she asked me a couple of days ago and I sort of lost track of what night this is. Gage is looking at me like he doesn't know whether to believe me or not. Call Mariana and make sure she can pick you up, he says. I hold out my hand for his phone. Use the landline, says Chloe, pointing to the telephone on the kitchen counter. You'll save minutes. I'll pick up the phone and dial. What's the address here? I ask at some point in the phone call. The call, the call that I made to convince Gage. The call that I faked because I was just talking to the local weather recording.